Uh, how was your weekend? Everybody have a good weekend? Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, I, I did not have the best of weekends. Uh, I, there, were, there were highlights, I will, I will give you that, there were some good highlights. My family returned, ending my introvert's week, uh, which was good, it was a highlight, to, good to see them after a week. Uh, dinner with Janine and her family actually last night was a big highlight, but so you ever have one of those house projects that sort of blows up on you? So I had grand intentions while the family was gone for a week to refinish our dining room. And our, it has this horrible, horrible texture on the walls. And it's just, we've been wanting to do something about it for six years that we've lived there. And so finally I said, this is my opportunity. I could not get the texture off the wall to save my life. It took forever. Eventually I had a couple of high schoolers come in and they finished the job for me getting that off. I got the room all ready to go, and Friday morning, I started uh, vacuuming to clean up. At least the room will be prepped, we'll be ready to paint. And so I start vacuuming with the shop vac. Unbeknownst to me, at some point along the way, the shop vac uh, got reattached to the other hole in the shop vac. <laughs> Those of you moaning know exactly what happens Everything just shoots out. That's the water attachment where everything just shoots out of the vacuum. Except there was no water in the vacuum. That was all drywall dust and texture dust and paint chips. It covered every single nook and cranny of our kitchen, of our dining room, of our entryway, all the way up our stairs leading up to the upstairs. Basically everything on our first floor, except, uh, I mean, I, I did have plastic up over a couple of doors, and so we, we were able to contain some of it. It just covered everything. We started opening cabinet doors and, and opening drawers, and it's a 96-year-old home, so there's no, like, I mean, there's crevices everywhere. And so you're opening, and it's, it's on all our spices and all our dishes, and I mean, so every single thing you got to wipe, wipe down. So that's how I welcomed my family home. <laughs> that's what Meryl and I spent the week, weekend trying to recover from. We're still recovering from that. Uh, you know what? The, the Bible tells us that sin is kind of like that. You know, in, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see how God created this wonderful, beautiful world for us to live in. And then Genesis 3, we find through human rebellion that, that sin enters this world and gets into every nook and cranny of this world. And, you know, right when you think you've cleaned it off, more dust settles down and you can just never get rid of it. And that's what the Bible tells us that sin is like. It, is, it just covers everything. And no matter how hard you try, there's always going to be some there, some left. And the preacher notices this. The preacher in Ecclesiastes recognizes this about our world. And so his question in this portion of Ecclesiastes is, so what do we do? And in particular, how should God's people 
work in a society like that, a society that's filled with wickedness, oppression, and envy. Those are his three main concerns in this section. How do we work? How do we go about our our everyday work in a society like that? Uh, And so that's the question that the preacher seeks to answer in this section of the book. But before we talk about our work itself, we have to talk about the kind of society we live in and what characterizes the society we live in. And we'll get a sense for this by looking at the preacher's observations about the world around him. And he mentions three forms of wickedness. Uh, and the first one is in the courts of justice. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 16 for us. And we'll look at this first form of wickedness here that he describes. So verse 16, it says, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animals goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? This is the word of the Lord. So he says in the place of judgment or justice, wickedness. Is there, And he's talking here about the court system. If there was a place where we should expect justice, it would be in the court of law. We expect that everyone should be able to get a fair hearing, but the preacher observes just the opposite. Instead of justice, wickedness. Wickedness just filled that society, got into every nook and cranny of that society. And the preacher sees this. And something is terribly wrong when wickedness is found even... In the court of justice, something is terribly wrong when the wicked prosper and the poor are oppressed. So does it pay to be wicked? The preacher reflects on this question, and he first answers it the way that the Bible often answers this question. He says in verse 17 that God will judge both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the wicked, but he'll do so in his own time. Uh, We saw last week that God's in charge of the times, both the good and the bad, both the present and the future. And God is in charge of the times, and God has set the times, a time to be born, a time to die. And God has made everything beautiful in its time. So there must be a time then when God will judge the righteous and the wicked. But we don't know when that time is. The preacher goes on to equate humans with animals. And he says 
the increasing wickedness in human society shows that there's no, there, really humans are no different than the animals. He says animals have no real sense of right or wrong or justice or injustice. And the preacher says humans are just like the animals in that regard from his observation. And then he takes that comparison one step further. He says humans have no advantage over the animals in that they both die. Uh, God gave both humans and animals breath. Uh, Humans and animals then are both fragile and frail creatures. And the same fate awaits them both. Just a side note, obviously the New Testament clearly moves beyond uh, the conclusion of this passage. And we see in the New Testament especially that the human spirit does move on after life. Um, And that's knowledge that this preacher didn't have at the time of his writing. So how then should God's people work during their short lives on this wicked earth? Well, he says in verse 22, So I saw there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that's their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? The preacher, as we saw in week two, has given this advice before, and he'll give this advice again. We spoke of this tension that's throughout the book. On the one hand, the world is often ungraspable. The the Hebrew word is hevel. It's ungraspable. Sometimes it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But then on the other hand, uh, we're called to enjoy it, to enjoy the moments in life. And the sense of it being ungraspable, not making a lot of sense. That's uh, what the preacher's saying when he observes the wickedness and oppression around him. He says that's hevel. But then the other side of that tension, he says, enjoy your work. And again, what I think the preacher is getting at here is that embracing that life is hevel, sometimes ungraspable, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Embracing that life is like that, that is sometimes uh, that, that can actually help us to then enjoy life, and in this case, enjoy the work that God has given us. But that's not the end of his advice. Uh, we'll get to some more advice he has later on, but the preacher at this point can't really get past the wickedness that he sees in the world around him. So after this brief reprieve, he gets right back at describing another form of wickedness he observes. So chapter 4 In verse 1, he says, Again I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil, that is done under the sun. This is the second form of wickedness that the preacher observes. He sees people being oppressed and no one is stepping forward to help them. This is a graphic picture of human society. Uh, three times he uses this word oppression. In the Bible, oppression involves cheating one's neighbor uh, out of something, defrauding him and robbing him. Uh, Oppression is the accumulation of goods, seeking profit without regard to the nature or needs or rights of other people. 
And so this preacher goes on to describe the oppression. He sees the tears of the oppressed and no one to comfort them. The preacher is so appalled by this that he says, I declare that the dead are better off than the living. But better still is the one who's never been born. And that's pretty drastic, a, a drastic conclusion he makes. He says the dead are better off because they no longer have to see human beings being ignored who are in trouble and taken advantage of for, for profit. And the unborn are better off because they've never had to see such atrocities. Well, so far the preachers mentioned two forms of wickedness. Wickedness in the court of law and also people being oppressed with no one to help them. And then finally he mentions one more form of wickedness that he thinks pervades society, and that's envy. So chapter 4, verse 4 says, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. And this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The focus here is on our toil and achievement By achievement, he means skilled labor, something that you're really good at doing. And for the first time, the preacher exposes what drives them both. And he says that's envy. The preacher observes that this is the core motivation of why we work. One scholar defines envy as a deep sense of jealousy rooted in insecurity as a motivation for work. In other words, everybody's comparing themselves to everybody else. The Bible has a lot to say about envy. Take uh, Proverbs 27.4 as an example. It says that wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who is able to stand before envy? Uh, One scholar writes that envy inspires competition and thus twists the noble sense of vocation into an exercise of rivalry, into an upward and onward quest in the pursuit of dominance, leading even to violence. The envy of one's neighbor flies in the face of the great command found in Leviticus and on the lips of Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself. Envy, in other words, destroys community. Envy hinders your ability to connect with other people. It puts a dividing wall between you and others. Envy is an easy trap to fall into. You get around people who who do what you do and and you realize how much better they are at what you do for a living. Uh, A part of my calling uh, as a pastor is what I'm doing right now, is preaching. Uh, And I'm sure you're aware there's no shortage of good preachers in this world. Um, I go to pastor's conferences usually at least once a year. And you know what? They usually don't invite your average everyday preacher to preach at those conferences. You, I've never seen a pastor of a church of 100 members preach at one of these conferences. Uh, normally it's someone with great skill who's published lots of books. And it would be easy for me and other pastors to compare ourselves to these extremely gifted preachers. You know, for some of us, seeing someone who is way better than we are at some skill can be a great threat to us. Then that may lead us to jealousy or workaholism or a whole host of unhealthy responses. And that's what the preacher's getting at here. At what and what does it tell us if we respond to someone's great skill with jealousy? It shows us that we're putting too much weight into what we do for a living. We may say that we're working for a paycheck. Uh, The preacher would say you're doing so for your identity, to justify your life. 
And he says, that's Hevel. He says, work cannot provide you with an identity. So there's this tension that we all feel. We all have to, have to work to make a living. We work to survive. And yet there's a part of every one of us that wants to do more than just survive. Uh, I think that's a God-given thing, that we should strive for work that is beautiful and good and fulfilling. We should strive for more than just getting the next paycheck. But is there a guarantee that we'll find paid work that, that it, like that in this life? No, that there's no guarantee of that. And the preacher would say, that's Hevel. He feels this tension of live, you know, your life is Hevel, yet enjoy your work. So how can God's people work in such a wicked and competitive world, one that's filled with envy and jealousy? The preacher says there's three ways that we can respond, or three ways that we can work in this wicked world. And he, he gives us this answer in the form of a riddle. So I'm going to read this for you, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. Here's, here's the riddle, see if you can pick up on it. He says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Perfectly clear, right? (laughs) You're probably thinking, what on earth is he talking about here? In order to understand this riddle, um, I need to teach you a little bit of Hebrew. Are you up for that this morning? We're at 11 o'clock. You should be awake enough for this now. So... He, the, the preacher uses three, three Hebrew words uh, for the English word hand here, okay? So the first one is, um, is this. The first one is your yod. Your yod is your, your hand and your forearm. So he says, fools fold their yods and ruin themselves. And so the visual picture there is one of laziness. He says fools are lazy. Uh, fools, they check out completely of the workforce. Uh, so you might hear about all of this wickedness and oppression around you. Uh, you may hear me talk about the frustrations and tensions that we all feel in our work. And you might be tempted to quit your jobs right now. And it says your envy of others may drive you to just give up. And he says, that's foolish. You're a fool if you do that. Uh, Fools are lazy or they completely opt out of the workforce. Uh, Proverbs 6 puts it this way, uh, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. So fools fold their hands and ruin themselves, or some translations uh, put it that they consume their own flesh. It's, that's, that's much more graphic. You know, and, in other words, fools are so lazy, they end up eating their savings, they run out of food to eat, and they end up eating themselves. It's like this picture of self-cannibalism. It's disgusting. Uh, and that's one extreme to avoid. He says, fools fold their hands. Don't do that. The other extreme is at the end of verse 6. He says, to chofen with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, your chofen... This isn't like a fighting posture. That's not what I'm trying to do. It's more, um, imagine like grabbing two fistfuls of something. Imagine like a kid at Halloween grabbing two fistfuls of candy. And that's the picture of two chofen here. 
And he says this option is equally as foolish. Um, That image of grabbing two handfuls. You might be so consumed with your envy of others that you try gathering as much as possible and you become slaves to your own work, to your own toil. So at first, two fistfuls might sound like a good option. I mean, who wouldn't want two fistfuls of something rather than one or, or less? We're taught over and over again in our society that bigger is better, that you can never have too much of a good thing. But there's a downside to two fistfuls because it comes with toil and chasing after the wind. In order to gain two fistfuls of something, you have to work and work and work and never rest. Those who approach their work with two chofen try to get out of work what work can never provide. An identity, a deep sense of worth, value, joy, and satisfaction. Now you can get some of these things from your work, but like all pleasures or good things in this world, they can never fully satisfy you. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. You were never meant to find your identity in what you do for a living. Those who approach their work with two chofen may be trying to control their future. Perhaps they know the outcome that they want to achieve, and now they're bent on making life cooperate with their plan. And so they're grasping. They're trying to do whatever it takes to make their career go the way they want it to go. Now, don't get me wrong. Planning has its place. But some people create too much of a plan. And that's almost worse than having no plan at all. Uh, Heavyweight legend Joe Lewis is alleged to have said, everyone has a plan until they've been hit. And that's what people who follow a a tight script fail to, to remember, or they fail to take into account, is that unscripted blow. And as we've learned in this series, some seriously hevel things are going to happen in life that are going to mess with your whole idea of how life ought to go or how my plans and my career should pan out. And if we hold on too tightly to our career plans, we create two problems for ourselves. Either we severely restrict our options as we shut the door on the unexpected, whether good or bad. There is good unexpected as well. Either we shut the door on, those, on the unexpected or we may predispose ourselves to resent the unexpected when it does come and it will come in your life. So if you're a planner and you have a career tra- trajectory sort of all mapped out for yourself, the preacher might suggest to you that you write the word tentative on top of that plan. In other words, make room for the unexpected. So don't fold your yod. You know, and don't approach your work with two chofen. Instead, the preacher says, better is one cough with tran- tranquility. The cough is the open hand. You know, the preacher says, approach your work with an open hand. Not grasping for control with two chofen and not giving up folding your yods. But approaching it with an open hand. He says, better is one hand with tranquility. Now, a handful is a small amount. It's not as much as two handfuls. I'm, I'm, not, I'm a math major, as you can tell. Uh, you may not, so you may not make as much money as your neighbor. You won't be able to keep up with the Joneses. You may not get the accolades that others get for their work. But working with an open hand comes with tranquility and peace of mind. 
As Proverbs 15, 16 says, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. And this is what the preacher recommends for God's people to work as they work in a wicked world. God gave the first humans work to do in the garden, even before the fall. Work is not a product, in other words, of the fallenness of human beings. It was designed by God as a good thing. We're meant to contribute. It's good to have work, to be productive, to be committed to something beyond just surviving. And it's important for humans to work and and produce. But if my beginning point in my work is control with two chofen, then what's in store for me is frustration, anger, and disappointment. But if my beginning point is not to you know, achieve a certain outcome or a career trajectory, but instead I approach that with an open hand, instead I release control of my life, then I'm free to enjoy my life and, and maybe find some satisfaction in my work and the work that God's given me. You know, I'll say this again, my ability to enjoy the simple pleasures of life, like my work, is directly tied to my ability to see that I have no control over my life. God wants to transform us at our deepest level of being, and he often does that through the painful journey of of loosening our attachment on the things that, that make our life meaningful, so that we can find true meaning in him. If you're too attached to your work or you find too much of your identity in your work, then God may be calling you to let some of that go. In view of many forms of wickedness in this world, we should be satisfied with one handful and approach our work with an open hand. As one scholar writes, enjoying our work with tranquility will enable us to experience again a little bit of the tranquility of paradise. We can work with quietness, with peace of mind, trusting that our Heavenly Father will provide us our food, our drink, and clothing, and housing. In a desert of wickedness, ruthless competition, a rat race, a dog-eat-dog world, we can experience an oasis of joy and tranquility when we don't follow the crowd and working to pile up possessions. Enjoy your work with quietness, and your Heavenly Father will provide your every need. We can enjoy our work with tranquility by going about our everyday activities, trusting in God's provision for our lives. We share in God's good work by singing God's praises, by loving our neighbors, by giving people, by giving people the gospel and, and praying for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. We also share in this good work by doing ordinary daily tasks in a way that gives glory to God. It's all kingdom work. As Martin Luther once said, the entire world should be full of service to God, not only the churches, but also the home, the kitchen, the cellar, the workshop, and the field. And Martin Luther King Jr. says that the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. And the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes, because God's interested in good craftsmanship. 
So what does faithfulness in work look like for you and your field and the, and the calling that God's placed on your life? What does it look like for you to work with an open hand? As followers of Jesus, we go about our work in the admonition of the Apostle Paul, who says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? God, we thank you for who you are and your kindness and your generosity and your desire, Lord, to work through each and every person in this room to do your work. And Lord, I'm grateful that it's not just you know my work as a pastor or the work of missionaries that matters, but all of our work matters. Because all of it contributes to your work in this world. And you've given us something as human beings where it is good for us to work. Um, you've, you've created us to do work. Uh, not to opt out with two folded hands. And not to grasp for more with two chofen. But Lord, you've called us to approach our work with an open hand. To approach life so that we may so that we may live, Lord, in all the fullness that you give us. That we live with a posture of trusting in you and trusting, uh, Lord, in your provision for us. But working from a posture of rest. For God, you created this world to, to operate in a certain way. And Lord, when we go against that, we find frustration and anger and bitterness. But God, when we do our work in it with a posture of humility and grace, Lord, you, I think you bless us in our work. I'm grateful, God, for this picture that you've given us of working in a wicked world. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful to everything that you've called us to do as your children. It's in your precious and holy name that we do pray this morning. Amen.